We're heading into Revelation chapter 3, and as you are turning there, I'm going to take advantage of the time that you are turning in your Bibles to Revelation chapter 3 by walking to the wall back here and to revisit now where we are on our timeline of events, although, there we go, my clicker wasn't working, now it is. Uh, Here's the timeline of events, friends, and again, this is all very confusing, but this is the outline of the whole book of Revelation. We go through it step by step. The only part right now you have to worry about is the church age. That's where we are in chapters 1, 2, and 3, and this is that section of Scripture here in Revelation, particularly chapters 2 and 3, where Jesus dictates seven letters to seven different churches. You'll notice in your Bibles that Revelation 2 and 3 are read, if you have a red letter edition of the Bible, this is Jesus speaking. He is dictating these different letters to these seven churches. And these seven churches are located here in Asia Minor. And so we've been looking at these particular cities, starting with Ephesus. Each letter goes clockwise. Ephesus, Smyrna, Pergamos, Thyatira, Sardis, Philadelphia, and Laodicea. These are literal churches. They have um, received literal letters in the first century. Um, They are intended to, these letters intended to instruct these individual literal churches. But in addition to that, it has application for us as well. We can learn from what these letters say because we can understand the heart of Jesus towards these churches and recognize that here we are today uh, in, in the 21st century, and yet each letter ends by saying, he who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches, plural. And so even today, we need to have ears to hear what is Jesus saying to us through these different letters. Uh, and in addition, these different letters serve to be a a picture of church history because each letter personifies some aspect of church history heading into even the future. So this is our timeline we're looking at. So the first letter to the church of Ephesus represented the first century, 33 to 100 AD, which was when Jesus ascended back to heaven, 33 AD, the the ministry of the New Testament church begins and continues until the end of the apostolic age, which is 100 AD, roughly, when the last of the original apostles died. And then that takes us to the second letter, Smyrna, 100 to 312 AD. A significant event happened in 312 AD. The emperor, Roman emperor Constantine had this epiphany of a, of a fiery cross, and he heard what he says is the voice of the Lord. He has this conversion experience to Christianity. Remember, Roman Empire, polytheistic, this was a huge conversion experience for the emperor of the Roman Empire to come to faith in Jesus. And what he does is he makes Christianity gain favorable status throughout the entire Roman Empire. Before that, Christians were were martyred for their faith. They were seen as enemies of the empire. Only Caesar was Lord. Now, Constantine says, because I've had this experience, I want everybody to have this experience. And so he elevates Christianity to favored status. And shortly after that, another emperor, Theodosius, not Expialidocius, Theodosius, okay, that's a whole other thing. Theodosius, the emperor in 380 AD, actually makes Christianity the state religion that you have to convert if you want to be in the Roman Empire, which on the surface might sound, that's cool, but that's not cool at all because now everybody's a Christian whether they really have a heart for it or not. You want to become a Christian now, it's the state mandate. That morphs into the Roman Catholic Church. 
because the state religion becomes the Roman Catholic Church, 606 AD, that's the next event. And Pergamos represents um, that transition. And then Thyatira, 606, the Roman Catholic Church, until 1517. Now, a major event happens in 1517 in church history, and that brings us to Sardis, which is the letter that we left off last time. And so that's here in chapter 3, the church of Sardis. I'm going to begin reading at verse 1 down through verse 6 of Revelation chapter 3. Let's first pause before we read and pray. Lord, we commit our Bible study to you now as we open up your word. We thank you for your revelation to us, and we pray that we would have ears to hear what the Spirit is saying to the church today. So speak to us, Lord, and may we incline our ears, not just our physical ears, Lord, but the ears of our hearts, to hear what you would say to us through these letters. We love you, Lord, and we praise you together in Jesus' name. And everybody said, Amen. So we come here now to the church of Sardis. This is the fifth out of the seven letters. In chapter 3, I'll read the first six verses. And to the angel of the church in Sardis write, These things says he who has the seven spirits of God and the seven stars. I know your works, that you have a name, that you are alive, but you are dead. Be watchful and strengthen the things which remain that are ready to die, for I have not found your works perfect before God. Remember, therefore, how you have received and heard. Hold fast and repent. Therefore, if you will not watch, I will come upon you as a thief, and you will not know what hour I will come upon you. You have a few names, even in Sardis, who have not defiled their garments, and they shall walk with me in white, for they are worthy." He who overcomes shall be clothed in white garments, and I will not blot out his name from the book of life, but I will confess his name before my Father and before his angels. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. So we make our journey now on the, on the uh, map around to Sardis. Sardis is not mentioned anywhere else in the Bible outside of the book of Revelation, It was situated about 65 miles east of Smyrna and about 30 miles southeast of Thyatira. A little bit of history behind this city so we can understand the context. Here Jesus is dictating this letter to be read to the church in Sardis. So we need to understand a little background about each of these churches and the cities in which they occupied uh, to understand a little bit of the context. So Sardis historically was a very wealthy city located along a major trade route through Asia Minor. Like the rest of the Roman Empire, it was polytheistic. The main goddess of Sardis was Artemis. Artemis was the goddess of the hunt. She was also the goddess of fertility. Also Sybil. She was the goddess Mother Earth. Dionysus was the god of wine. We'll come back to him in a moment. Uh, Some of the first coins ever minted were minted here at Sardis. It was the center of carpet and wool industries, even back in the first century. And garments were made here. Now note that because Jesus is going to talk about garments, if if you notice when we read through there. 
And something else about this city that it was known for, it was known for a huge necropolis. Now, a necropolis is basically a large graveyard from two Greek words, nekros in the Greek, uh, meaning death. At, you know, necromancy is like, it's, it's witchcraft, it's talking to the dead. Um, polis meaning city. So necropolis, necrospolis, meaning uh, a city of death because this large elaborate graveyard gave this city Sardis a nickname, the Cemetery on a Thousand Hills. That's what Sardis was nicknamed, the Cemetery on a Thousand Hills. And so these last two bullet points I just mentioned, the idea that garments were made here and the idea that there was a large graveyard here, Jesus is going to play off these two themes in this letter to them. Now, at some point, Sardis becomes influenced by Christianity uh, because there's a church here. Even in the midst of a very polytheistic Roman city, as Sardis was, uh, it was influenced by Christianity because not only does Jesus address a literal church here in, in the letter to in Revelation, but the remains of a Christian church building were discovered near the Temple of Artemis, the ancient ruins of the Temple of Artemis. Without doubt, the presence of a church was a strong witness to this immoral pagan city. You know, I, I love the idea that it, 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 Christianity in general should be about shining light in the darkness, uh, you know, not, not running from it, but, you know, being the, the counter to darkness. And so it's a beautiful picture here where the remains of an early Christian church found right next to the temple of Artemis. And it is saying, you know, listen, the culture may, be, may lean one way, but we're going to influence that culture with the gospel of Jesus Christ. In A.D. 17, a major earthquake uh, passed through Turkey, this region that we're talking about here, Asia Minor or Turkey, and uh, the city was basically devastated, and it was never rebuilt to its former glory as a result of this earthquake in A.D. 17. Today, Sardis is the modern town of Sart in Turkey with a population of about only 5,300 people. Now, here's the breakdown of this letter that we just read, and uh, every letter that we're looking at through these seven give us some unique title for Jesus. Uh, He mentions a commendation, he mentions a complaint, and he mentions a reward. So here's what he says here to the church of Sardis. And the church of Sardis is basically seen in, in church history as the dead church, and we'll talk more about why that is. But first, just kind of gleaning application from this letter that Jesus dictates here to the church at Sardis. What can we learn? What can we understand? What's the application? First of all, his title here that he uses for himself is him who has the seven spirits of God and the seven stars. Now, the number seven in the Bible often is a picture, is a number for perfection or completion. And so one idea behind the idea when he says he has the seven spirits of God, because there's only one Holy Spirit, so what does this mean, seven spirits of God, is is that it simply refers to the perfect work of the Holy Spirit, the seven being the idea of perfection or holiness, uh, uh, rather perfection or completion, that, that there's one spirit of God. And so seven spirits, simply an indication of the perfect work of the spirit. But it can also be literally translated the sevenfold spirit, the sevenfold spirit, uh, or the complete fullness 
of the Holy Spirit. And with that in mind, we can see the sevenfold attributes of the one Holy Spirit in Isaiah chapter 11. I'm going to read verse 2. This is what Isaiah 11 verse 2 says. And this verse applied to Jesus as Messiah. This is what Isaiah 11 2 says. And the Spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him, the spirit of wisdom and understanding, the spirit of counsel and might, the spirit of knowledge and of the fear of the Lord. And in that verse there in Isaiah 11:2, it actually gives us seven aspects of the one spirit. In other words, the sevenfold aspect of the one spirit. Again, in that verse in Isaiah 11:2, it tells us the Holy Spirit is, number one, the spirit of the Lord. Number two, the spirit of wisdom. Number three, the spirit of understanding. Number four, the spirit of counsel. Number five, the spirit of might. Number six, the spirit of knowledge. And number seven, the spirit of the fear of the Lord. And so it was this sevenfold spirit that rested upon Jesus Christ. That is what is meant by the seven spirits of God. There's only one spirit. It either means the the fullness of the spirit with the number seven, or it means the sevenfold aspect of the one Holy Spirit. Now, what does it mean about the seven stars? He who has the seven spirits of God and the seven stars. Well, back in Revelation chapter 1, verse 20, it's spelled out for us that the seven stars are the angels of the seven churches. And that word angels, each letter begins addressed to the angel, but again, it is agalos, and agalos can also translate messenger. It's the same Greek word used, agalos, for John the Baptist. And so again, not a literal angel, but probably just simply the messenger of each church, meaning the pastor. And so when he says here that he has the seven spirits of God and the seven stars, how comforting to know that Jesus Christ has the pastor of these churches in the safety of his hand. This, his commendation about them is that they are a small minority or a remnant of holy people, and he commends them for this. God has always done great things throughout time through a small remnant of his people. It doesn't take a large number of people with God. God can do whatever he wants, and he often uses a small remnant of people to accomplish his purposes. Look throughout biblical history, Noah and his family. That was it that God used to repopulate the earth. Gideon and a small army with Gideon to defeat the Midianites. Three brave, three brave Jewish teenagers who stood up to King Nebuchadnezzar in Babylon. One courageous Jewish princess, Esther, living in a foreign land, standing for what was right with God. Twelve apostles. I mean, all through the Bible, you see just how God used a few, just a remnant here and there to accomplish his purposes. A few righteous people in God's hands can make all the difference in the world. So he commends them that in this church, there's a remnant of holy people. But now here's his complaint. His complaint is that you can be alive on the outside, but dead on the inside. That was this church. They were busy, they were active, they were productive, but they were spiritually dead. Activity does not equal vitality. Activity does not equal vitality. You can be a very busy church, but be very spiritually dead. Their works were not done out of the overflow of their walk with God, but out of obligation and duty. And so he he complains about this. He, He condemns them. Uh, for, for being alive on the outside, but, but dead on the inside. 
You know, this is one of the complaints that Jesus had with the Pharisees in his day. He said, you're like whitewashed tombs. You look pretty on the outside, but on the inside, you're full of dead men's bones. And, and so the idea is that we need to be spiritually alive, not just look alive, but actually be alive. He said, you're dead. You're spiritually dead. That'll have ramifications to the historical application we'll get to in a minute. But then his reward for those who are the true remnant within the church of Sardis is that they're going to be clothed in white garments. And white in in scripture is a picture of righteousness. So they're going to be clothed in righteousness. Now, I think this is literal and figurative. It's the idea of being clothed in righteousness. But I think that the saints will be, you know, you're going to get that white robe one day so that nobody's going to worry what label you have and what store you bought that outfit from. It's all going to be given by God. It's going to be this standard uniform and you're all going to be dressed in white as the saints. And so he's, but it's a picture of being clothed in his righteousness where God provides for us those garments of of white. And then he adds there, another part of this reward is that your name for the righteous, for those who are real followers of Christ, he says, your name will not be blotted out of the book of life. Your name will not be blotted out of the book of life. Now, depending on what translation of the Bible you read from, and I'm reading from New King James. In the New King James Version, the book of life is mentioned seven times in the book of Revelation. This is the first. The first of seven times. What exactly is the book of life? The book of life is a record of all the names of the people who are going to heaven. Now, I have mentioned this before, and I get sometimes a little pushback on this verse, but I'm going to tell you my conviction about what he is saying here when he uses the specific language that your name shall not be blotted out of the book of life. Notice he does not say that if you're righteous, your name will be added to the book of life. Now, why is that significant? Because I think the inference is that everyone's name starts out in the book of life. Now, this is not the only text because it's dangerous sometimes to build a whole you know, doctrine off of one text. Listen to what David wrote in Psalm 69, verse 28. When David was writing about his enemies and he was pleading with God, he was praying to God about his enemies. And he said this in Psalm 69, 28, let them be blotted out of the book of the living and not be written with the righteous. So even David says, let their names be blotted out. They're my enemies. They don't love you. God blot their names out. Again, the inference is the name is already there in order for it to be blotted out. Now, don't misunderstand. I'm not saying that, you know, everybody gets saved and, and, and you know, and that your, your name, you know, could get blotted out for various reasons. What I'm saying is that there's this initial Um, entry of names into the book of life, which answers the question. I get this question all the time. What about little kids who die before they come to know Christ? What about little kids who are like one or two years old and they die and they don't, they don't have the ability to come to know Christ. What about those who are mentally disabled and they can't, they can't make a decision for Christ. They don't have the mental capacity to make a decision for Christ. Some do, but not not all. And and these kind of questions that people raise about what happens before somebody is even able. And when you look at other passages of Scripture, for example, when David, in his sin with Bathsheba, conceived a child and that child died, David was praying to God for that child to live 
And when the child died, he got up and ended his fast and went into the temple of the Lord. And he was asked, why are you not now still mourning? And he said, he shall not return to me, but I shall go to him one day. And David even understood that that little child, that little baby, would never return to earth. But David knew that where he was going in heaven, he would see that child again. You, you see gracious provision in the book of, of Exodus when, when um, an entire generation of adults was not permitted to go into the promised land because of their sin against the Lord, except for two, Joshua and Caleb. God made gracious provision, however, for their children and said, your children shall go in, but you as adults shall not because you disobeyed me. God made gracious provision to take the children into the promised land. When you, when you sew all this together, I'm personally convinced. You can disagree if you want to be wrong. I'm personally convinced. I'm kidding. There's room for debate. I'm personally convinced your name is entered. It's the reason why children, before they have an opportunity to receive Christ, their name is in the book of life. Your name is entered. The reason it gets blotted out specifically is when one rejects Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior. When you don't accept Christ as Lord and Savior, then there's no remedy for you, and your name is blotted out of the book of life. And there's no entry to heaven for you. So, you know, I don't want anybody to misunderstand. I'm still saying the only way to heaven is through Jesus Christ, faith in Jesus Christ. What I am saying, however, is based on the language here in other places, like what I quoted from David, is that your name is first written and it's blotted out if you don't receive Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, and if you don't confess him as Lord and Savior. So... You keep your name from being removed by trusting Christ as your personal Lord and Savior. So he, he rewards them in this way, and that is a good reminder to all of us. Now, let's talk about this in terms of its uh, church historical application, because the Church of Sardis represents, on the, church, on the timeline of church history, A.D. 1517 to, A, to A.D. 1750. And these bookend events were, in, eight, in 1517, the beginning of the Protestant Reformation. Martin Luther, who was a Catholic monk, on October the 31st, 1517, had 95 objections to the Roman Catholic Church and the Roman Catholic doctrine that became known as his 95 Theses that he nailed on the door of Castle Church in Wittenberg, Germany, and his objection to the Roman... He's, he's, a, he's a Catholic monk himself, and he objected to the Roman Catholic doctrine, particularly, specifically, indulgences. Now, what were indulgences? Indulgences were when the Roman Catholic Church would require an individual to pay them, to pay the church financially with money, in order to be absolved from sin. Those were indulgences. That was one of the main things that really ticked off Luther, uh, besides the fact that the main doctor of the Roman Catholic Church is salvation by works, not by faith alone in Christ alone. It was penance, it was indulgences, 
And uh, by the way, I want to you know, thank, because every time I start to touch on things related to Roman Catholic Church, some people object and they'll email me. I actually got some very wonderful emails from people who um, have Roman Catholic backgrounds saying to me, yes and amen, that was my story. You know, I, I didn't understand until, you know, I came to faith in Jesus. And, and so the, I'm just stating facts that the, that the Roman Catholic Church, the doctrine is a works-oriented religion because it's not in Christ alone, through faith alone, uh, by grace alone. It is through different works that you have to do in order to compensate for your sin issues through, through penance and even through indulgences. And so Luther, uh, frustrated with, with this practice, particularly of indulgences, uh, led him to write his 95 Theses, which were quickly snapped up, translated from Latin into German, and distributed widely. And a copy was sent to Rome, and efforts began to convince Luther to change his tune, but he refused to do it. And in 1521, Pope Leo X formerly formally excommunicated Luther from the Catholic Church. That same year, 1521, Luther again refused to recant his writings before the Holy Roman Emperor Charles V of Germany, who issued the famous Edict of Worms. And the Edict of Worms declared Luther an outlaw and a heretic, and because of the emperor's edict, it gave permission for anyone to kill Martin Luther without consequence. He was protected, however, by Prince Frederick, and Luther began working on a German translation of the Bible, a task that took 10 years to complete. Now, we're here today as part of the Protestant Reformation. Um, Luther decried the doctor of the Roman Catholic Church, was excommunicated. There was a hit put on his life, but he managed to survive. And, and thus, a stream of Protestantism came out of what was the state church that morphed into the Roman Catholic Church. And eventually, through 1517 until the early 17 and mid-1700s, there, there was another shift in church history, and it was the Great Awakening, the first Great Awakening. This revival in the mid-1700s stimulated growth of several educational institutions. Uh, And these following colleges and universities were planted as a result of the Great Awakening as originally Christian institutions. Princeton, Brown, Rutgers, Dartmouth College, just to name a few. And as a result of the descent from the established churches during the period It led to a broader toleration of religious diversity and kind of the democratization of religious experience. And all of this led to the Revolutionary War. All of this led to the colonies deciding that religious intolerance uh, by England uh, is something we should rise up against. And thus, the American Revolution was birthed really as a result of the First Great Awakening. Now, this then leads us into the next letter and the next part in church history and the next church, which is the letter to the Church of Philadelphia. So let's look here in the remaining time we have to the letter of the Church of Philadelphia. I'm in chapter 3 still, starting at verse 7. 
Jesus says unto the angel of the church in Philadelphia, write, these things says he who is holy, he who is true, he who has the key of David, he who opens and no one shuts and shuts and no one opens. I know your works. See, I have set before you an open door and no one can shut it for you have a little strength. You have kept my word and have not denied my name. Indeed, I will make those of the synagogue of Satan who say they are Jews and are not, but lie. Indeed, I will make them come and worship before your feet and to know that I have loved you. Because you have kept my command to persevere, I also will keep you from the hour of trial which shall come upon the whole world to test those who dwell on the earth. Behold, I am coming quickly. Hold fast what you have, that no one may take your crown. He who overcomes, I will make him a pillar in the temple of my God, and he shall go out no more. I will write on him the name of my God and the name of the city of my God, the new Jerusalem, which comes down out of heaven from my God, and I will write on him my new name. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. So now we move 28 miles southeast from Sardis. We come to the city of Philadelphia, built by and named after a king of Pergamos. His name was Adelus Philadelphus who died in 138 B.C. Philadelphia translates literally, most of you are, I'm sure are aware of this, the city of brotherly love. In Greek, that's what the city means. Uh, little is known about Philadelphia, the biblical city of Philadelphia, besides what we glean from this letter. There's no other mention of this city or this church anywhere else in the Bible outside the book of Revelation. It also, like Sardis, was rocked and devastated several times by earthquakes, almost completely destroyed by the same one in 17 AD. It was situated on the lower slopes of Mount Tmolus, which are volcanic hills, and as a result of the volcanic activity that predated Philadelphia, the, the, the soil in that region was very rich and uh, it, it was very fertile, and grapes were one of the principal crops here in Philadelphia. And as such, uh, it became the reason for Philadelphia's worship of Dionysus, the god of wine. The Roman name, uh, rather the, the uh, yeah, the Roman name for Dionysus is Bacchus. And there was always an annual feast that involved a lot of drinking and a lot of orgies. And so that's this city. Yet again, against this backdrop, a Christian church was thriving. The modern name for Philadelphia in Turkey today is Alasher. Alasher is Arabic for Alasher, God city, the city of God in Arabic. It is now dominated by Islam in that city. Here's the breakdown of this letter to the church of Philadelphia. Jesus' title is he who is holy and true, who has the key of David. What he opens, no one can shut or shuts, no one can open. Okay, God identifies himself as holy and true in the title of this letter. He is holy. He is perfect. He is pure in all his ways. And he is true. Now, there are two different Greek words that we might translate the word true with. One means true and not false. And another Greek word means true and not fake. The latter is what is used here, true and not fake. It is alethinos, and it has the idea that Jesus is real. He is genuine. Jesus is true in all of who he is. He is the real God and the real man. He is the God-man. And when it says here that he is also known as the one who has the key of David, and, and it talks about what he opens, no one can shut or shuts, no one can open, that's actually a quote from Isaiah 22, verse 22. 
Isaiah 22, 22 says those very words. And so what Jesus is asserting here is his authority and his power as the rightful heir to the throne of David. That's all in his title. He commends them for having a little strength. That, that, that does not mean that they were weak because they only had a little strength. What that actually means is that they had real strength, but they are not too full of themselves. Their real strength, they know, comes from God. And so he commends them. You guys are strong. You're spiritually strong here. And he also commends them for keeping God's word without denying his name in the face of persecution. Remember, this literal church, a literal letter, first century, Christians are going through great persecution. It isn't until, you know, again, 312 AD that they get favored status. And so he commends them. You've kept my word. You've been obedient. You've not denied my name even though you have faced persecution. And notice, if you will, he has no complaint against this church. None. No complaint. This is the ideal church. This is the evangelical. This is the evangelistic church. And his reward for the evangelistic church is that they will be kept from the hour of trial that is coming upon the whole world. Now, the hour of trial that is coming upon the whole world is also known in Jeremiah 30, verse 7, as Jacob's trouble, the time of Jacob's trouble. Also in the book of Daniel, Daniel prophesied about it in Daniel 9, 27, as Daniel's 70th week. Jesus spoke of it in Matthew 24, 21, when he said, For then there will be great distress, unequaled from the beginning of the world until now, and never to be equaled again. This is speaking of the great tribulation. Now, friends, this is a proof text for us as to why it is that the church, the true church, at the time when Jesus returns, will be taken from the earth prior to the tribulation period. This is a proof text for us that we will be delivered from the hour of the trial that is coming upon the whole world. This is Jesus saying the reward for the church, the true followers of mine, when I return, will be that they will escape the hour of trial that is coming upon the whole world. He's talking about the great tribulation. In fact, in Matthew 24, 21, I just read a minute ago, the next verse, in verse 22 says, if those days had not been cut short, no one would survive, but for the sake of the elect, those days will be shortened. For the sake of the elect, we will not have to endure the great tribulation. Now, Paul comes along in his letter to, to the Thessalonians, and in chapter 4 of 1 Thessalonians, he talks about how that when the trumpet sounds from God, uh, the trumpet call of God, the dead in Christ will rise, and we who are alive and remain will be caught up together with them to meet the Lord in the air. Next chapter, 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, he talks in verses 1 through 11 about the seasons and times of his coming. And he says in 1 Thessalonians 5, 1, he says, but concerning the times and the seasons, brethren, you have no need that, you, that I should write to you. For you yourselves know perfectly that the day of the Lord so comes as a thief in the night. For when they say peace and safety, then sudden destruction comes upon them as labor pains upon a, pro, a pregnant woman. Now he's talking about the intensity of the tribulation that comes attached to that part of the end times. But then a few verses later, that's the context. In 1 Thessalonians 5, 9, he says, For God did not appoint us to wrath, but to obtain salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ. So the church is not appointed to wrath. 
And God is going to graciously rescue us from the coming tribulation upon the earth. I will have more to say and to show you from Revelation chapter 4 why I believe that that is the case that the church has taken prior to the rapture. So I'll save that for chapter 4. Let me just quickly move on to the aspect of church history and why this is a significant event here when we come to the church of Philadelphia because it represents the evangelistic church from 1750 ongoing right now. Now, no church is perfect, right? And if you think one is, don't join it or you'll ruin it, okay? There's no church that is perfect, all right? But I would see ourselves as part of the Church of Philadelphia, as an evangelistic church that will get raptured, that will be spared the wrath that is coming upon the earth. And so in 1750, here's what happened, and it is ongoing today as part of this stream. But the reason I show you this slide behind me is because there was a, a diverging streams in the church age. And we'll get into more of this next week because our time is about escape this. The one stream is the evangelistic church. That's what is represented by the Church of Philadelphia. The other stream is the Church of Laodicea, which we'll get into next week. That's the apostate church. And there are two streams right now in our world. It's undeniable. There are some churches that are evangelistic, believe in the fullness of Scripture, believe in the inerrancy of the Word of God, believe that Jesus is the only way to salvation. And then there's a liberal apostate church that is, that is alive and well today, sadly, that denies Scripture, denies the inerrancy of the Word, denies the virgin birth, denies Jesus as the only way to salvation, denies Scripture in general as the foundation of truth and morality of faith and practice. And those two churches, those two kinds of churches exist today. All right, there are two different streams. Now, let me tell you just for tonight, before we close, here's what happened in the evangelistic church, the Church of Philadelphia. There have been basically four great awakenings in church history. The first one started around 1730, 1740. So 1750 is just a round number. We're talking people like Jonathan Edwards, John and Charles Wesley, George Whitfield. This is part of the first great awakening. John Wesley logged more than two, listen to this, more than 250,000 miles on horseback preaching the gospel throughout Scotland and England. 250,000 miles on horseback. The gospel spread, this first great awakening. People were getting saved in the, in the mid-1700s, starting, it was really entrenched in 1750. Then it gave way to the second great awakening, which was 1790 to 1840. Author J. Edwin Orr wrote about the second great awakening in his book, The Rebirth of America. Listen to this. This is fascinating. He said, quote, in the mid-1800s, people began to be converted at the rate of 10,000 a week in New York City. Don't you pray for that again. Amen? Amen? 10,000 a week in New York City. The movement spread throughout New England. Church bells would bring people to prayer at 8 in the morning, 12 noon, and 6 in the evening. The revival went up the, Jud- the, the Judson and down the Mohawk. Baptists had so many people to baptize, they couldn't get them into their churches. They went down to the river, cut a big square in the ice, and baptized them in cold water. In one year, 1857, more than one million people were converted. Amen. In one year, 1857. 
More than one million people were converted. The revival crossed the Atlantic, broke out in Northern Ireland and Scotland and Wales and England, South Africa, South India. Anywhere there was an evangelical cause, there was revival, and its effect was felt for 40 years, end quote. It eventually gave way to the Third Great Awakening, which was 1855 to 1930. Part of the, great, uh, the Third Great Awakening around 1904-1905 was the Great Awakening in Wales, the Great Welsh Revival. One of the fascinating things that happened in the Welsh Revival, it was captured in a book, The Glory of His Presence, by Dr. John Shiver. And he talked about how there was a powerful move of God that swept across Welsh towns and valleys. Entire communities were transformed. Bars and gambling houses closed due to lack of business. Prostitution ceased. Courthouses closed because there were no criminal cases to try. This is what happened. All social indicators improved throughout Wales except for one. Coal production. Why was it that coal production dropped during the period of the Great Awakening? Here's why. Here's what they discovered. And this is what Dr. Shiver records in his book. The donkeys that would haul the coal out of the coal mines on these little coal carts refused to listen to the orders of the coal miners because the coal miners got saved and stopped using bad language. (laughs) True story. And no longer were the donkeys responding to their pleas. So instead, they, they were like, come on, you gracious little animals, you. God bless you. Move now. Move, would you? And they wouldn't move because they were used to them cussing at them. True story. The fourth great awakening was 1960 to 1980. Billy Graham, the Jesus movement with Calvary Chapel and Chuck Smith, the charismatic movement of the 70s and 80s. Listen, friends, it happens about every 30 to 40 years. The last of the great awakenings was around 1980. We are due for another one. The time is right. Right now. The time is right for another great awakening. Our world is getting crazier by the minute. And all of this stuff that is happening including this mysterious virus that we're all dealing with. And we have an election coming up in November. Listen, it's time for another great awakening, and we need to be praying for that. Praying for that, praying for that, praying for that, like mad, and watch the Holy Spirit fall, I pray, on our nation. The Church of Philadelphia became labeled as the evangelistic church because of its global influence in the gospel still ongoing today. Tens, hundreds of thousands, millions of people have been saved during this time period of church history. And may God continue to do his saving work through his church. And may we be a part of it. Amen? Amen. Amen. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for your word, and we thank you that we can live in a day when, even as troubling as things are around us, it is ripe for another great awakening. Lord, fall upon our nation. Move by your Holy Spirit. Revive us again, Lord. Move in the hearts of men and women and young people. Ignite a fire for you. People who have no clue about you, may they have a desire to seek you. May you move in a powerful way throughout our nation, Lord. Use whatever means 
You choose, Lord, to accomplish a great revival again, a great awakening in our nation and around the world. Lord, globally, we pray. We pray for peoples of all nations, not just our own, that you would move in a mighty way, that globally people would come to faith in you. And Lord, perhaps you'll use something like this virus. Perhaps you will use the different tensions that are happening right now in our own nation to bring people to you. Lord, may there be revival. We pray for revival again in our nation. For your glory, Lord. For your glory and for eternity of souls. In Jesus' name we pray. And everybody said, amen and amen.